it's so much easier to continue selling to an existing customer who's already purchased with you, who's had the history and who has that know, like, and trust relationship. The online model where you're a thought leader or a solopreneur, that really lends itself to that know, like, and trust repeat business relationship. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And in fact, for marketers, you know, I've always said to them, you know, start with retention and repeat transactions and then work your way backwards to acquisition. Hi, I'm Rand Fishkin from Oz and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy from ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. A few days ago, I had the privilege of interviewing a graduate from the Stanford Business School, and we had a great chat about membership sites and subscription businesses as a business model. So I hope you get as much value out of this podcast as I did. If you'd like to book a consulting session with me, head over to ProductiveInsights.com forward slash hire. That's ProductiveInsights.com forward slash H-I-R-E. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is an expert in membership sites and is the author of the book, The Membership Economy. She's the founder of PeninsulaStrategies.com and has clients that range from startups and venture-backed companies to industry leaders like Netflix, Yahoo, Oracle, and eBay. Over the last 10 years, Peninsula Strategies has advised nearly 100 organizations on their growth strategy. She's a sought-after speaker who's presented at Stanford and Harvard. She's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal and has been asked to write articles for American Venture, Marketing Profs, and Management Consulting News. She also holds an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Management and graduated with honors from Harvard College and is an active volunteer with both institutions. It's my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Welcome, Robbie. Oh, thanks so much, Ash. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you. So, Robbie, I'm keen to know a little bit more about your background in management and how that's shaped your journey and your thought leadership around subscription models. You know, like you, um, I have an MBA, and it's really shaped the trajectory of my career. Um, I've always liked people managing um, businesses and thinking through strategy. And what's happened over the last several years is that I started in consulting. And then I went into tech, into industry, working with um, specific companies where all of them had a subscription model. Um, They're what now are called SaaS companies, but at the time had a different name. And I realized I really liked the consulting side. I love new ideas. I love to work with different kinds of businesses and understand all the pieces and how they fit together. And so, you know, for most of my career, I've really been a consultant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And can you talk about what you've seen in businesses around the evolution around the membership model? You talked about SaaS and for the listeners, that's software as a service, but we've seen the absolute proliferation of companies like Netflix and uh, there's a lot of other companies that are moving into the membership model, into the recurring income model. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen that evolve over the years as a consultant? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I worked with Netflix um, starting about 14 years ago, and they were really the the first company that I saw that was using this membership model. So the SaaS companies, you know, they didn't really see any kind of relationship among the co- the companies they were working with. 
Whereas Netflix was the first one that was actually taking the data that they were gathering and using that data to build better experiences for these customers with whom they had an ongoing relationship. Um, what I've seen since then is um, the fact that technology has extended the infrastructure of trust and it's making it possible for more organizations um, to provide an ongoing formal relationship with their customers. So, you know, first it was Netflix. We see it with lots of online businesses. We see it with Yahoo, premium services. We see it with eBay. We see it with um, SurveyMonkey. We see it on the B2B side with Salesforce and HubSpot. But we also see it with traditional businesses. So Weight Watchers, um, we see it with the phone company, with, with you know, the T-Mobiles and AT, you know, uh, various uh, phone and telecom companies. Um, we see it with professional associations and nonprofits. And what's really interesting to me is we're starting to see it proliferate with uh, small businesses and with uh, solopreneurs and thought leaders who are able to build a membership around their expertise. Right, right. Something that really jumps out at me from when I had done my MBA is the fact that it costs between five and nine times less to retain an existing customer as it does to acquire a new customer. That is really at the core of the membership model, isn't it? It's so much easier to continue selling to an existing customer who's already purchased with you, who's had the history and who has that know, like and trust relationship. The online model where you're a thought leader or a solopreneur, that really lends itself to that know, like, and trust, repeat business relationship. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And in fact, for marketers, you know, I've always said to them, you know, start with retention and repeat transactions and then work your way backwards to acquisition. If you don't know that you can get a second deal, don't get a second customer and in the membership economy, when you have this formal ongoing relationship, a recurring revenue model with your customers, it becomes 10 times more important. Right. And the problem is retention is just not very sexy. So people don't want to spend their time there. Um, but if you care about making money, yep. spend your time on retention. That's it. Exactly. And let's flesh that out a little bit more because something that I'm far more interested in than revenue is profit because really profit is your money that is left after all your expenses and if you think about how much it costs you to acquire a new customer versus how much it costs to retain an existing customer, it's probably, like I said before, five to nine times cheaper, depending on what article you're reading. But the point is, cost of retention is so much lower than the cost of acquisition. The best customer you can have is the one that just bought from you, right? Right. No, absolutely. Um, retention is, is cheaper and it has a long life to it. Yeah. And the other thing about retention in the member, I totally agree with everything you said. And I would add that in, in the membership model, referrals become really important. So not only yeah. is it cheaper to retain your customers, but each customer that you retain that becomes a true member of your community becomes a new marketing channel for you. Right, right. And that's such an important point you just made. The word community, they become your evangelists. They actually like your products, your content, they consume it and they share it. And that's the best way to grow your business. It's a reinvention or a recreation of the word of mouth. Yes. Uh, the word of mouth strategy, as it were. Yeah, it's way more efficient than word of mouth because word of mouth actually requires, you know, I tell you, you know, Ash, you should buy this this um, 
widget at this store. You should buy this great new pen at this store. You have to actually remember what I told you and right. get to the store. Yes. Um, whereas if I tell you online, like if I say, oh, I just had this, I just send somebody a message. I just had this great talk with Ash. You should look at his community productive insights. If my friend sees that email, they can click on a link and they're into your community. Yes. So efficient. And so when I talk about technology extending the infrastructure of trust, that's a piece of it is that it's just so much faster and so much more efficient today to build word of mouth than it, than it was, you know, many years ago. What a great point. That is exactly what I was thinking as you were speaking earlier, actually, about how technology has made the whole referral process so much easier. Maybe it should be called uh, word of link or something. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because yeah. it's it's just literally down to clicking a link. There's the communication is so much simpler. It's it's just reduced to one tap on your mouse. So you don't have to say go to as you said, go to the store or go to this website, go to you just click on the hyperlink and you're there and you can buy the product. The conversation is so much simpler and quicker. So great point. And I think that the technology is increasingly going to evolve to deepen this referral process. So I think if you want to grow a business, a great way to do it is to develop a community of evangelists who love your products, believe in your products, and are willing to refer it in increasingly lower friction ways as time goes on, as technology evolves. And let's face it, Apple has evolved to a large extent that way, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've been they've been very deliberate about this idea of evangelists. Um, and they've also been, I mean, if you look at their their business model and their their strategic uh, approach, you know, they've always had a very closed system. So if you use Apple products, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking into an Apple store and yes. saying, you know, my PC and my iPhone are having a problem. They will always say, it's the PC's problem and I don't know how to fix it. That's not what I do. <laughs> so they actually have a very high bar, um, which most of us don't notice anymore because we've all jumped over it. Um to become part of their community. You really almost have to commit to their full range of products yep. um, and their full range of support in order to get the really elegant experience that they promise. Yes, I totally agree. That's a subtle but important point. They have a closed system, as it were, and a lot of people hate them for it. And, you know, fair enough. I mean, I think a lot of people feel that they can, they're very restrictive in terms of people that they let in to the inner circle, as it were. But once you go into the inner circle, and I went into it about four <laughs> years ago, and I just, you know, I, I'm completely, I'm completely besotted with the products. I, I do think that, as you say, they keep you in that ecosystem. And interestingly, talking about subscription models, they've just launched Apple Music now. And that, I think, is going to be an interesting source of revenue. I would love to see the figures that come out in their next quarterly report when they, eventually, when they start releasing it after they start actually monetizing the Apple Music. Yeah, well, really interesting about that is, you know, this is one of their first really formal membership kinds of models where you're really paying for access as opposed to ownership. And they're being very aggressive about building trial through this, you know, free opportunity. And, yes. you know, I have written a lot and thought a lot about the value of free and where free fits in. And this is a yeah. perfect use. It's when you when you need to change behavior. Um, 
And yes. they're really in the process of, you know, all these people that for the last 10 years or so have been thinking about, you know, by the song, which was a big change in behavior that they that they led. Now we're thinking about, you know, the kind of Spotify experience, right, which is the you know, Apple Music experience, which yeah. is very different for people that grew up bragging about their record collections. Yes, that's a very good point. I think the Beats acquisition was about acquiring competencies around recurring memberships as well. It wasn't just about getting the label. I think they were trying to acquire the know-how about how to monetize a membership model, which Beats had been doing yeah. for some time. I think the Taylor Swift move was quite interesting. I have to ask myself whether it was orchestrated or not. But regardless, I think Apple came out looking like the winner because they acquiesced to something that Taylor Swift requested on behalf of all the other artists that were selling their art through iTunes. She, she wanted to be paid. She wanted to be right. paid. She wanted to be paid. She said, hey, just because you're giving it away to your people does not mean that I have to give it away. Yes. Exactly. Initially, Apple had said that during the three-month trial, they weren't going to charge customers for their membership to the music streaming service, but they weren't going to pay the artists for those three months either. And Taylor Swift came out saying that just because you, Apple, have decided not to pay your customers doesn't mean that us artists shouldn't be paid. She represented all the other artists that were selling on iTunes who were in the position of the underdog. And when Apple agreed to change their decision based on Taylor Swift's request, it reflected really well on them as they appeared to be doing the right thing, which they were. Maybe it was a good PR yeah. tactic, but either way, it seemed to have worked yes. pretty well. I agree. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit about how the membership model can apply to a brick-and-mortar business. I have a florist that lives down the road from me. She's a, the president of the local chamber of commerce. And I was saying to her the other day, you know, you could have a membership model set up yes. with, your, with yes. your florist shop. You could do an estimate of how much you're selling to your regular customers in terms of flowers. And you could come up with some kind of a subscription model where you say you pay $10 or $15 per week and you get X number of flowers delivered to you. It creates a stable recurring revenue model, which banks and uh, as we know from our consulting yeah. backgrounds, which banks analysts yes. absolutely love or any kind of a stakeholder, a financial stakeholder would love when investing in a business. And um, she was interested in it. And we we're going to discuss that in further detail, but I've been presenting this idea to a lot of my clients, especially since I heard your podcast with James about it. Would you like to talk to us a little bit more about how bricks and mortar businesses can harness yeah. this uh, recurring model? Absolutely. So, you know, when you think about your friend, the florist, um, you know, what she is selling, if you think about why do people buy flowers, you know, in many cases, you're buying them because you want the experience of having flowers. I like having flowers in my home. I, that makes me feel good. It looks nice, whatever it is. If you make it easy for people to get that value on a recurring basis, they'll pay. So, you know, the thing that I would advise her on is to focus on what's the real underlying value. It's not just the flowers. And in some cases, it's about a particular moment, like a wedding or, or a funeral where it's a one-time deal. But for, for a certain segment of people, this is an ongoing experience of, of luxury, of indulgence, of being in touch with nature. And if she can tap into that community, she can provide them something of value and get that benefit that you're talking about that the investors like and that contributes to the valuation of her business. I think most small businesses have a big advantage over large businesses in terms of membership, which is they know their customers personally. 
right? Yes. And Great point. that's where they need to leverage their their differentiated status. So, you know, FTD, the big florist in the United States, you know, the the I don't know what you'd call them, but they're kind of the conglomerate for all the small florists. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a subscription that you can get where you get, you right. know, flowers of the month or flowers of the week. But the, what what they don't have is they don't actually know the people. Yes. You know, and so that's really where these small businesses are, are differentiating. And I've seen it with, with manicurists. I've seen it with restaurants. I've seen it with, uh, like I said, solo practitioners, professional services providers who create communities around their thought leadership and their expertise and ongoing mastermind groups. So there's tremendous possibility. And it's actually a really important way that small businesses can differentiate. Okay. And you mentioned restaurants. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I'm very interested to know how do restaurants create a subscription model and how have they done it successfully? Yeah, so they've done a membership model. And there's a couple of things that they do. One of them is they allow, basically the whole idea is you give people special benefits for being part of the community. So yes. I've seen, um, a, there's you know, some restaurants where they allow you to keep your wine on site, uh-huh. right? So then you can use your wine uh, where you're on a tab which oh, gives yes. like, so very much like the country club model of a restaurant. Right. A, a lot of restaurants around here are having special evenings, like a tasting where they bring in a, a vintner or they feature a certain, you know, it's, it's mushroom season and we're going to do everything with mushrooms. And they create a special experience that you can only access if you're a member. Right. And you can give them price advantages as well, right? If they're on your mailing list, then they can get, you know, the second meal for free on this certain day when you do a special. Yeah. There's loyalty programs, which are one form of membership, which exactly a lot of times tie into um, to discounts and price advantages. But there's also, if you go the other way, there's prestige advantages and community advantages. So, you know, you and I both, might both really enjoy fine food and we might enjoy meeting each other at a restaurant so that we can build a relationship and talk about food. That's part of the advantage. And that restaurant gets the glow of, you know, me going to it and saying, I love being a member of this restaurant club because I meet people like Ash who also share my passion for fine food, you know, and I've seen a lot of newspapers doing that. So The Guardian in the UK is doing that. Uh, News UK is doing that. News Corp. Uh, Wall Street Journal is looking at these things of having special events for their best Mm-hmm. members. They're not calling them subscribers. They're calling them mm-hmm. members. And they're giving them access to come to an event and, for example, meet their photojournalists mm-hmm. and have that experience and talk to other smart people who care about news. And people are paying a really high premium right. for that. The other thing that I find very interesting and valuable about this membership model is when you make somebody a member, you're not just getting their customer loyalty, but you're also getting their attention. You don't have to win their mm-hmm. attention. And in today's information overload environment, free is no longer free because when someone gives me something for free, my the thing I'm asking myself is, well, how much of my attention do I need to give you? And you have to win my attention if I don't know you from before. But if I am already a part of your community, you don't have to win my attention. You now just have to present me with a compelling offer. Right. Because I already trust you. Yeah. Right. I already trust you and I'm already, and I've already created the habit of looking at stuff yes. that you send me. Those two things. It's, it's, the, it's the combination of trust and habit. And I, I would say though, that there's a double-edged sword, which is if I trust you and I read the stuff you send me and the offers you send me, 
it's because I trust that you're going to send me things that are of value and in my best interest. And if I ever feel like you're taking advantage and sending me schlocky (laughs) junk, not only will I cancel, but because I'm more invested in it in the first place, I'm going to feel invested in letting everybody know how I feel. Okay, that's a great point. Yeah. So membership, it's like a double-edged sword. If, if you want someone to trust you, you better not violate their trust. And that actually segues really well into the next question I had to ask for you. And that was, what are the main disadvantages of the membership model? And as you said, it's a double-edged sword. If you upset mm-hmm. people in your community, they're going to evangelize both ways. They're going to talk about the great stuff, but you better be sure that you're giving them great value and you're on point and you're cementing that relationship with every communication because the minute you abuse it, it's going to work against you. So that's clearly one disadvantage. Are there any other disadvantages that you've come across with a membership model? Yeah. I mean, I, and I would think of them more as, as risks because, you know, obviously (laughs) I'm a big fan of, of membership models. And I, I think in general, they're, if you can make them work, they're tremendously advantageous to the organization. But there's a couple of things about it that are really hard, one of which we just discussed. Um, I think a lot of organizations make the mistake of focusing so much on the subscription revenue that they don't actually provide an ongoing benefit. Right. Um, and they get really caught up in their in the features as opposed to the benefits. Like, oh, I'm sending, you know, here's another product, here's another product. And they kind of do the kitchen oh, yes. sink approach. Um, like I, I'm going to send you a bunch of junk and hope that the amount is so big that you're going to be wowed, which works great for acquisition and does not work for retention. A subtle, but very important point. Yeah. And a lot of, I think, especially a lot of, um, of thought leaders make this mistake where they have all this stuff, but a lot of it's old or it's not relevant or it's relevant to other people. And so they're not segmenting in a disciplined way. Part of what I want in a membership is exactly the right offerings that benefit me. Robbie, that makes a really interesting point about Apple versus Android. So Apple is very minimalistic with their approach to features. They only release features that are very relevant to the customer experience. They took a long time before they embraced NFC or near-field technology, whereas Android was waving it in the customer's face years before it was very relevant or practical to people's everyday lives. And as a result, if you look at a typical Apple customer, they tend to own a fair amount of Apple devices, whereas with Android, I'd say it would be a lot lower. And it has to do with being very focused on the features and benefits, as you said very poignantly, the benefits to the customer rather than just throwing a whole bunch of features at someone and seeing what sticks. It's about thinking for your customer and thinking about how is my customer going to benefit from what I'm offering and only putting the most relevant stuff in front of them so they don't have to make the choices and they can get on with their life in as unfettered a way as possible. Yes, absolutely. We, We want the elegant solution. You know, it's sort of like the difference between, you know, the Chinese menu uh, that goes on for pages and pages and you have to figure out what's going to make a good meal versus somebody saying to you, I suggest that you get an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert. Here's what might go well. Would you like that? Um, and I think people are willing to pay a premium. You can see the difference between what you're willing to pay at a, at a diner or you know, a place with a big menu versus places that have a prefix option. Yeah, yeah. We pay more to have less choice. That's a great point. And the paradox of choice is becoming more and more of an issue as 
information overload increases more and more, you know, the paradox of choice is exhausting. exhausting. I mean, having too many choices <laughs> is actually a drain. And it comes back to the attention argument where if you are going to ask me to give you five minutes of my attention rather than one minute of my attention, I'm going to want to pay you less money rather than more money. So don't make me think too much. I already have too much to think about and just make the decision as simple as possible for me. Yes. And also, if I trust you, and I know that you're not just going to give me every idea that you've thought of, but you're going to focus on what's useful for me, I'm going to be more receptive to everything that right, you give me. Right. So less is more. Less is more. That's the most important takeaway. Yes. And that's what <laughs> you do to make the membership model work successfully. You think from your customer's perspective, think about what's most relevant to them and only put that in front of them and keep building that trust relationship. Okay, Robbie, let's talk a bit about where you see the membership economy heading in the coming years. We've already touched on that in our discussion so far. We've talked about Netflix. We've talked about a lot of companies heading that way. Apple is the largest company in the world at the moment and is you know, embracing that model. Where do you see it going in, say, five to 10 years? What other businesses do you see coming on board that currently aren't on the membership model uh, gravy train? Yeah. So we're already seeing a lot of businesses and, and organizations that are investing in membership. You know, we talked about Apple, you know, we see it with Amazon. Uh, we see it with a lot of tech companies. We see it with nonprofits and small businesses. But one place that we haven't seen it very much is with um, physical products, consumables. So we've, we've also seen it. We haven't even talked about the share economy and the, the whole idea around things like Airbnb, uh, relay rides where you're sharing uh, major assets that belong to peers. But I think the last frontier or one of the last frontiers is, um, is consumables. So things that you buy on a regular basis, like snacks, like, um, like health and beauty aids, uh, things along those lines where you need replenishment all the time and creating community around those kinds of things, both to allow the consumer to not have to worry about going to the store all the time to replace them, but also to create a community where as those products evolve, they can also, you know, get trial of the new, the new offering. So we're seeing that, we're seeing experimentation with some of the snack companies, the Honest, the Honest Company, which is a smaller company that I think Gwyneth, is it Gwyneth Paltrow or Jessica Biel, some actress started. You know, we're, we're seeing it with the PNGs and the, the major manufacturers of the world. And what's really important for them and the reason that they're thinking about this and investing in this kind of direct-to-consumer is it allows them to avoid going through retailers. Right. Because if you think about traditional retail, um, you know, they've always been the face of the product to the consumer. And now it's Amazon for the most part, right? The online retailer, which really controls the relationship. And we're seeing Amazon do things like, you know, they notice which branded products are selling well, and they're coming up with their own private label, just like the retailers, you know, the traditional retailers did. And they're delivering it via those drones, which right. completely cuts out the retail mechanism, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're seeing, you know, this opportunity where, where the CPG companies, the consumer packaged goods companies are actually having an opportunity to reconnect with the consumer. Hmm. through membership models where they go directly to consumers. It's not for every product, but we saw it with a Dollar Shave Club where, you know, yes. people who care about their shave are going direct yeah. and the relationship is now with the, with the manufacturer. It's not through Amazon. It's not through Safeway or the drugstore or Target. And I think that's, 
there's a lot of interesting things happening there. That's very interesting. So we could see a major disruption for the Targets and the Macy's and the Woolworths of the world coming around the corner if there's enough trust developed between the buyers and the manufacturers like and, uh, Procter & Gamble and so on. Yeah. I think I actually think the trust is there. These are big, trusted brands. The problem is they don't have the distribution. Right. I have something really interesting to share with you, Robbie. I remember when I'd done my MBA, we studied about Dolby and uh, Intel. Uh, do you remember the Intel Inside campaign? When, oh, yeah. You know, they actually circumvented the distributors who were Compaq and yeah. Apple. Uh, actually, Apple wasn't selling Intel at the time, but a, a lot of these uh, PC manufacturers, they actually created the Intel Inside campaign. So when you bought a PC, it would have this little Intel Inside label on the front of the PC. And then customers started going and saying, does it have an Intel chip inside it? And Intel reversed the relationship where their buyers that were the PC manufacturers, they converted them into distribution channels. And now Intel was calling the shots. Dolby did the same thing with yes. movie theaters. They were advertising sound, Dolby yeah. sound. And so people were asking for Dolby sound in the movie theaters. And so the movie theaters felt compelled to have Dolby as their sound system. So it seems like we're possibly going to be looking at PNG doing something similar in distribution of uh, consumables down the track. Yeah. create. You know, they, they have these good brands, but they don't know who their consumers are. You know, right. they don't know them. They, they, they do lots of research and they try to understand, but they don't actually have like a CRM that allows them to say, oh, Robbie bought diapers from us last month and she also bought, you know, um, salty snacks from us last month and she also bought, you know, shampoo from us last month. Therefore, we can, you know, understand who she is. If they can develop a direct relationship with me, they get better data. Um, they can create communities among different kinds of consumers and say, oh, you're buying a lot of baby products. You must have a baby. Yes, you know? yes. And they can really do some very interesting things. Yeah, that's true. And because they have such a large volume, they have statistically significant amounts of data where they can really do a lot more than the person who's got a corner shop down the road. Yeah, absolutely. That's their advantage. Okay, so let's bring it back to our listeners who are largely small to medium business owners. What are the biggest challenges you've noticed with small business owners getting started with a membership model and what's worked best in terms of overcoming them? So I think the biggest challenge facing small businesses as they think about membership is they get overwhelmed by what they think they have to do. Right. I need a sophisticated technology. I need this and that. I can't do it because I'm so small. And, you know, a great example of somebody who's done this really well is that there's an organization called APO. Um, Kathy Nelson runs it. And it's the Association of uh, uh, Photo Organizers. Um, so mm -hmm. people who help you, you know, it used to be the creative memories people who would help you make scrapbooks. Um, mm -hmm. But now this is people that come to your home and look at all your digital content and help you actually use it and enjoy it. And she started an association for those people. And she's just one person. But she's been very careful about the technology she uses and, and very careful to provide tremendous value. She trains people on how to become photo organizers. She helps them with their marketing. She helps them manage their finances. And then she brings them together for conferences. And she's added on bit by bit. And so she's actually built something really big and powerful. And what's interesting is that now the big picture companies, the Kodaks of the world, the Shutterflies, are coming to her 
because she has expertise on where consumer photography right. is going. And this is one person. So, you know, I think, I think that small business owners and entrepreneurs need to remember that at the heart of it, it's about providing value to your members and mm-hmm. creating community and creating ongoing experience. And all the other stuff will come later. Don't, right. don't get your knickers in a knot about, you know, <laughs> I don't have the best website or I don't have automated billing or, you know, it's not about the technology. Technology is a supporting thing, but it's really about creating the community and providing the value. Great point. It's not about technology. And I think a lot of us do get very swept up or or caught up in the idea of how am I going to make this happen? The point is, I think the question a lot of small business owners should be asking themselves is not, how do I make this happen? But do I want to make this happen? Make the decision to make it happen. And then the technology will figure itself out. Absolutely. It's all about why should I make it happen, right? It's exactly, you know, and I think that's actually an issue with entrepreneurs in general is, you know, focus on the thing you want to have happen. And do it in the low-tech way, in the kludgy way, in the clunky way, and see if there's demand. Yes. And then you can start figuring out elegant, efficient ways to deliver it. Right. So taking the discussion back to this example we talked about before with my friend, the florist, she can approach a few of her regular customers and just say, would you be interested in monthly subscription where I send you X number of flowers for Mm -hmm. X number of dollars and see what they say. You don't even need technology for that. You just ask them the question. Right. And then she can see how is it to create those bouquets every month and what's hard and what's easy and she can adjust and she can grandfather them in. If You know, sometimes like one of the risks is that when you start a membership organization, um, it's very hard to change pricing and it's very hard to take anything away. So she can always grandfather them in if she gives them too much or, you know, makes it too hard for her to to follow up with them. Um, but to try a small experiment, see how it works, learn from that, and then evolve is really, you know, for, for companies big and small, that is the best way to to enter something new. Now, that brings up another very important point, pricing. Do you recommend that people starting off with a membership model err on the side of a high price or a low price? That's a really good question. I think I have to say that it depends. Um, And what it depends on is what you're trying to figure out. So if I'm starting out and I'm trying to figure out, will people pay for this? Then I better have a high price that's the price that I think is justified by the value. If I'm trying to figure out if I can make the operations work, then I might want to start with a lower price so that I can get my feet wet. Because right. I can always grandfather those people in. So it really depends on, you know, I always say when you're, when you're testing something, you have to know what question you're trying to answer. Great point. Yep. Yep. You have to be clear about exactly what the point of the test is. So yes. that's a great thing. So the, the takeaway here is they need to ask themselves what they're trying to do with their membership model to decide on how they start with their pricing and what the objective is of that membership model. Okay. So let's talk about quick actions that a listener can take. Now we've already touched on one of those and that is ask yourself if you do want to do this and why you want to do this when you're mm-hmm. starting a membership model rather than yep. how am I going to do it? 
the how will come later. The first thing you need to be asking is, is this appropriate for my business? And do I really want to make this happen? And I would say, based on this conversation and based on what I know about memberships, it's probably a yes. You really need to be seriously yeah. thinking about memberships for your business, the membership model. And if not, you need to be asking yourself, why not? Mm -hmm. Why doesn't a membership model apply to my business? Because it probably does. Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say is, place where membership doesn't work or the, the one place that I found where I've talked to organizations and said, yeah, you probably don't need a membership is when marketing isn't a factor. So these right. are things like um, highly regulated businesses where you sell to one buyer or, you know, two buyers and you know them really well. Those don't really need a membership model, but anybody that spends money and time on marketing can probably benefit from a membership model. So that's an overwhelmingly large number of yeah. businesses. Yeah, and probably the majority of your listeners, I would say. Awesome. Okay, now, Robbie, can you talk to us about books that have really had the biggest impact on you and why they've had such a big impact on you? Yeah, sure. So one of them is uh, the book uh, by Chris Anderson, Free the History of a Radical Price. You know, I'm very interested in, in pricing models and, you know, you know, you and I talked quite a bit about pricing. And I think when you're trying to put a membership model together where it's so hard to change the prices once you've got it known in the market, I found that book really, really useful. It's definitely a book that I wish I had written. You know, when okay. I read it, I thought, oh, I wish I wrote that book. That was a really good one. I think I feel the same way. There's a book, uh, Groundswell by Charlene Lee, which is yeah. all about sort of social and how you build, you know, the different kinds of of participants in a social community. Um, and I found that really, really helpful as well. You know, on a personal note, you know, I'm a mom and I have three kids and I bet you have a lot of listeners who are uh, looking to be more entrepreneurial as yes. they, you know, have kids. Um, and there's a book called uh, Getting to 50-50, which was written about 10 years ago by uh, Joanna Strober and Sharon Mears. Yep. And it's basically the idea is if you're in a marriage and both people and you have kids and you both want to work in a, in a professional capacity. So it's it's really for people that are, you know, in professional roles, not... Which is the case with me, yeah, and yeah, probably okay. a lot so of my audience. Yeah. Maybe you and your, and your spouse should, should read this. Um, it's, if, if those things are all the case, here's the best way to manage your work and personal life. Cool. I love it. So it's about, it's great. And it's, you know, I read it, uh, you know, the book came out, I think, 10 or 11 years ago. So my oldest child is 17. So I kind of missed the boat a little bit. Yeah. But it's just so helpful to really think through you know, how you want to balance your career with, with children, because it, it can be really hard. Okay, fantastic. I'll definitely include all these books in the show notes. And of course, a link back to your site, which brings me to my next question. How does a listener get in contact with you or find out more about you if they want to find out more about you? So I'm really easy to reach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can go to um, the book site, which is www.membershipeconomy.com to reach mm -hmm. me. You can email me at rbaxter at peninsulastrategies.com, which is where I, you know, my, my consulting firm, where I hang my hat every day. Uh, you know, you can, my phone number is on uh, both websites. That's, wow. It's, I'm, I am accessible and I'm really eager to hear from people. I'm on Twitter, Robbie Bax, you know, cool. it's. Uh, well, I'll definitely be following you on Twitter very shortly, Robbie. So. That's great. That's great. Okay, fantastic. Is there anything I've missed that you would like to add? Any points that I might have missed? Anything you would like to add to this conversation? You know, I think you did a great job. You, you asked really good questions. And I think we had a pretty lively discussion. <laughs>
So I'm happy. This was a great, great uh, interview. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Robbie. I really appreciate having you on. So that's the end of the interview, guys. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I definitely have a much deeper understanding of subscription-based businesses and how important it is for every business to at least consider it as a possible alternative business model or at least another way of monetizing their existing customer base. You can head over to ProductiveInsights.com forward slash hire to book a consulting session with me. That's ProductiveInsights.com forward slash H-I-R-E. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?